just naturally without even trying, I think I just continually to apply business concepts to health optimization, personal optimization, and as a category kind of human optimization. Very much like an agile development or agile testing framework where we identify issues, we prioritize, uh, we come up with a hypothesis, we learn from it, and we continue in this loop through optimization. Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast, where we delve into the stories of successful entrepreneurs so you can discover what's possible. Today's guest is David Hauser. Hey, this is Yarrow. So before I press play on today's episode of the EJ Podcast, I want to make sure you don't miss out on any of the future episodes I release. Go to interviewsclub.com and there you can find a page where you can enter your email address to sign up for updates of whenever we release a new episode. You get an email so you'll always know and have the latest episodes as soon as they are released. That's interviewsclub.com. Now here is today's episode. Hello, this is Yarrow, and welcome to another Entrepreneur's Journey interview. Today on the line, I have a guest who I have to admit, I used to hear a lot about his company, uh, or his previous company anyway, which I'll explain in a moment. But let me introduce my guest. It's David Hauser. David, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming along. So David, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but your biggest claim to fame is the company you founded Grasshopper and later sold. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the company we scaled the furthest, for sure. Okay. Any other? I mean, everyone's got their own personal decision on what they think is a claim to fame. It could have been, you know, high school baseball team or something. But, you know, is there anything else that you want to put out there right now just so we can sort of, you know, be interested in the, yeah. the whole story? Yeah, sure. So in high school, I, I helped found Return Path, which is an email management company still around today. I've also been involved in a ton of other startups. So we, we built Chargeify, another SaaS product within Grasshopper, and, and that company we then sold as well. And then, of course, lots of failed things along the way, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's kind of the part of the entrepreneurial journey. And then I've had the, you know, the pleasure to, to invest in over probably about a hundred different companies at the angel stage. So I, I've seen a lot of different things and, a lot of different industries mm. now. Yeah, I was reading your, your you got a Wikipedia entry, so you know you know you're a big deal when you have a Wikipedia entry. So I'm seeing Intercom, Unbounce, a couple of big companies there that I'm quite aware of that, that you Angel yeah. are invested in. So but Grasshopper is certainly a company I used to hear a lot about. I think probably Mixergy podcast. I think you guys used to advertise <laughs> like crazy on that right, with with Andrew Warner. Yeah. Yeah, we were good friends with Andrew and uh, still, I, I mean, I love Andrew. And we definitely are advertised early on there. It was one of our many channels of advertising. Right. Well, I'd love to dive in a little bit of, of that backstory too. But, and of course, you're also the author of a brand new book, another reason to talk to you. And so I'd like to cover all of this. Let's go back in time first. So born and raised in the States. Is there any kind of entrepreneurial endeavors even before you're, you know, the, the, you had something at a teenager, but it sounds anything when you're younger than that? Yeah, I mean, I think I was always an entrepreneur. I didn't even know what it really meant. And I think my family too. So my, my father ran his own business that it, my grandfather ran as well. So I just kind of was exposed to that and, you know, that experience. But yeah, I mean, as back far as I can remember, I would try to sell whatever it was. I made jewelry, like with the, the metal ties and, and beads and stuff. So in essence, buying the cheapest materials possible and, you know, selling it as a cute kid, right? And, and capitalizing on that. 
I think yeah, I did a number of different things like that. Played with baseball cards and trading cards and things. Then I think when I really started to understand that I wanted to do something besides kind of a hobby that happened to make money, I started doing web design probably right before high school. And I said to my dad, I, I need a computer. And this was back when you, you would buy a Dell computer and it was like $4,000, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, you can get a computer, but you have to pay me back for it. So that kind of made me very aware of making sure if I was going to make a decision that I was going to make money from doing so. And started doing web design and kind of progressed from there along that path pretty early in high school or just before actually, so eighth grade. Okay, so I know when I was in grade seven, I'm 12 years old. I'm playing with Nintendo to timestamp this. That was Super Nintendo for me. I think you're about 10 years younger than me. You must have been like, it was like the late 90s when you're just yeah. about to play with your computer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I was, I was 18. So yeah, similar. I, I was, wow, you were really early though. Okay. So take us forward. You feel you have this obligation to pay back your father and make this business work, but you're also only 12 years old. So I'm guessing you have normal homework to do, you know, all those other things going on, right? Yeah, so it's actually very interesting. So in eighth grade, I actually didn't have a tremendous amount of homework because I went to a very unique school in New York City, a progressive school called City and Country. A great experience, but definitely did not believe in homework and grades. So high school was a little different for me when I went to a quote-unquote regular high school. But I think at that point, I had learned you know, both how to learn, I had learned time management, and then going into high school, I guess my parents kind of overloaded my schedule a little bit. So I did three different sports and uh, a lot of other extracurricular activities, and that made me quickly understand time management. So homework never really got in the way, and I think that also helped. You know, later on when I founded Grasshopper when I was in college, right? Same principles applied. I was going to school four days a week. Uh, I compressed my classes as much as possible so that I could work as much as possible. Mm. What about the marketing side? Because that, that's usually the hardest thing, you know, getting clients, and especially if you're even a teenager or grade eight convincing someone to buy from you anything unless it's lemonade or racial cards is is quite an ask so how did you do that yeah i mean i think you have to use what you have to your advantage right so rather than downplaying my age i i kind of you know played to that and said you know give me a chance you know i'll do you know if you don't like it i'll refund all your money right so like i had that flexibility because without a family or you know necessarily bills to pay other than paying back the computer i could have that flexibility so i kind of played that up and then just using any relationship I possibly could. So I did a few free projects first. You know, obviously I did my dad's company's website. I guess that was interest on the, you know, payment for the computer. you know, associations and other people in the industry. And, you know, at, at this point, you know, if you look back that far, you know, we're talking 15, 20 years now, actually a little more than that, you know, web design was much more immature than it is today. So the expectations, I think, were also tremendously lower. So being able to accomplish that, I think, was much easier than it is today. So how come that company did not turn into your first multi-million dollar business? Or maybe it did. (laughs) No, it definitely didn't. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I quickly found that I didn't love doing it, one. And then two, I think it's very hard to scale a services business. And I, I understand that more today. I think at that time, I just understood that it was, like you said, very difficult to get a consistent flow of clients. And I was young, so I didn't necessarily understand why. Uh, and I think that's one of the challenges scaling a services business. But the nice thing is it, it let me kind of go into the next thing. So I met some people. I created a, a banner advertising network and software that managed banner advertising. Like this was early, early on. And I met those people because of doing web 
design. So I started building that up. I met other people and like each step of the way, it was just from doing what I was doing that I met someone else, right? So were you also like a programmer where you're quite technically skilled? Yeah, so never any like traditional schooling necessarily. I think the only class I ever took was an AP computer science class in in high school because it was easy for me to get a, a good grade in it. But I taught myself, so I'd buy books. I can remember sitting over, you know, kind of Christmas break when school was out, reading, you know, how to program in Cold Fusion, you know, a, a long ago mm-hmm. language, right? And just taught myself. It just worked for me. Okay. Was there any inclination at, at this time that you were going to? Because it doesn't sound like it. Have a traditional career path, like graduate, go to college, get a job, or you know, <laughs> it sounds like you're an entrepreneur from day one. But it still could have been like, if this doesn't work, you have to get a, a normal job, as your parents telling you that or, or something. No, it was pretty clear that this is what I was going to do. Okay. Um, there was even discussion when I was working in kind of the internet boom before the crash in New York City. Like I was down on Broad Street, like kind of the center of where things were happening in New York. I considered not going to college. I think the only time my mom or my parents kind of said, hey, this is not a good choice is when they when that conversation came up. And my mom quite clearly said, look, if you really don't want to go, that's fine. But I would suggest you do in case something happens, right? And And something did happen to that industry, but more importantly, just to mature and and things like that. So I'm glad that I listened, but I went to a very entrepreneurial school. I I applied to Babson College, which is the only school I wanted to go to, very entrepreneurial course structure and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it was clear, like I was not going to get a job, you know, quote unquote, regular job. So normally in my interviews, we kind of brush past the teenage years uh, because there's not a lot happening there. But I feel like we almost have to spend a bit more time here with you, with you David. <laughs> so can you take us forward with that, this banner advertising management company? How'd that go? And you know what was next? Yeah, so that did reasonably well. I mean, it was enough money to kind of, you know, pay for things you want as a teenager, right? Like go out to dinner or do stuff like that. It wasn't a massive success, but we were doing quite well at it and in a very early space. From there, I looked at all sorts of other things and ultimately met some people in New York, went to work for James at his company, and he was running a company called thesquare.com, which was a social network for Ivy League graduates, uh, kind of sounds familiar, right? Mm. Way, way before Facebook. Did some work with him and ended up founding a company in the email space, Return Path, with him and a few others. And that's right around when I was kind of considering, you know, do I go to college or not? I ultimately decided that I was going to go to college. So I, I went and focused on that. Still did stuff on the side. So the banner ads were still happening while I started college. And that was re- providing, again, reasonable income, but it wasn't scaling quickly. Focused probably the first year to two in college, a little bit more on school. But then by my sophomore year, going into junior year, I was pretty focused on starting something. And that's when Grasshopper started. So Return Path, were you involved with that much? or And what was that exactly? Yeah, Return Path, the concept was actually very simple at start. It's, it's way more complex now as the company's been around for you know 20 years. But the concept was very simple. People change their email addresses for three core reasons, right? Uh, you get a new job, you leave school, or at the time you change quote-unquote internet providers because this was like time of AOL and such, right? Mm-hmm. And this was for a lot of companies the only way they had to contact you. So if a company spent you know, a thousand dollars acquiring a customer and your email address changed, that's a really big problem. So we came up with a, a solution that said, you know, give us your new email address. We'll filter out all the spam and things you don't want and make sure you get the things that you do want 
we had agreements with a bunch of people that were large internet providers to collect that data. So we had this database of old and new, ended up doing a partnership with the U.S. Postal Service. So if you look on the bottom of the form there, you know it says, what was your old email address? What's your new email address mm. if it's changed? Today, it's way more complex than that, and the business is you know, scaled significantly. But that was the concept, and it was very interesting at the time. And I think, quite honestly, that concept alone is still very interesting. Yeah, it sounds like you were almost inventing the Google spam filter before Google existed, combined with some sort of mail redirection digitally. I'm thinking at the time, too, that would have been... I mean, something that technically was way more challenging than it sounds. Like I was thinking for a minute there, you're just talking about a human being sitting there deciding, no, this email doesn't go forward. Yes, this one does go <laughs> forward. You know, it's a, a service like that. But it was pretty rudimentary rules when we started, right? Like, you know, do you want to receive quote unquote promotional items and things like that compared with, you know, actual companies that know who you are and want to be reaching out to you? So, like, right. making sure that you would get the email from eTrade, right? Because that's a pretty important one compared to the email from you know restoration hardware saying please come back and buy from us mm-hmm. okay and so you were you were part of the founding team but it sounds like you went and focused on university more than that company. yeah I was I was only there for about six to eight months I built some of the original prototypes and 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 helped with that stuff we raised some capital brought in an outside team that team has since grown the business pretty significantly are you still in any way involved, ownership or anything? <laughs> I mean, I have a tiny ownership, but after like three rounds or four rounds of funding, <laughs> but they alluded, you know, huh? <laughs> I, I don't think it's a necessarily you know life changing or meaningful amount as much as it was a good experience. Okay, so how does all this experience? We're, we're talking banner management, email management, website creation, development. All eventually leads to Grasshopper. How old were you when you started that? Uh, so it was my sophomore to junior year of college. Okay, so 2019, 2021. Yeah, so 2003, roughly. So post dot com crash bubble yes. blowing yep. up. So you you already were somewhat in the redirecting of information world with <laughs> with return path. So there must be a connection to Grasshopper <laughs> there somehow. I'm not sure how, but. I wish it was something like that, but it was actually much more simple than that, which was in all of these experiences, one thing was consistent that I or my founder and friends or whoever it was in all of these small businesses needed a easy solution for phones, right? And the solution that everyone picked was you get a cell phone or you have a cell phone and you list that as the phone number, right? And so this was, you know, still early-ish days of cell phones. So it wasn't tremendously cheap. There was still like long distance charges and stuff, right? But that was kind of the solution available for dealing with phone calls for businesses. And I said, there, there has to be a better way because, A, I can't answer my phone in the middle of class or you know at home. That's not very professional. Looked around and just didn't find anything like this. So what was very interesting is the technology existed, right? PBXs or you know phone systems have existed for far longer than that. But no one at the time had packaged it for a small business, both from a pricing standpoint or a technology standpoint in terms of access, meaning I had to buy expensive equipment. I needed to be installed in a physical location if I wanted this type of a service, meaning you know, extensions, transferring, on-hold music, the stuff you'd expect in a business, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really where it came from. And I had no background in telecom. I didn't understand at all what was involved or how to do it. This was far before Twilio was available or any sort of API that you could do any of this stuff. So our first server literally had two T1s plugged into the back in a data center. And that was it. <laughs> like, 
it was pretty simple. Okay, so I'm thinking this is really early days too. I mean, when I was hearing about Grasshopper and what you guys did, it, it was must have been like 2010, 11, 12, 13 era. And it sounded kind of new and cool then. It would have been really new and cool to be sort of looking at the internet as a way to do anything with the phone. I think Skype probably was just surfacing around then. Uh, in Skype, the Skype, I think, was just after that. Okay. So put it straight, you were essentially dealing with something fairly cutting edge, even though, like you just described, it, the technology itself may not have been, but to... And bring it to the world of digital media, I guess maybe that was where it was new. Can you take us forward? How did you, what was the first premise of this company and how did you get your first customer? Yeah, the premise was quite simple, providing a, a professional image for small businesses via their phone systems. And we had a different brand name. It wasn't Grasshopper at the time. We didn't understand how to market. The only benefit we had, to be quite honest with you, is, is because it was so early, this was before Google AdWords, we were able to purchase clicks on Omniture at the time, which were very, very, very cheap, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, you know, you're talking one cent, you know, uh, type clicks that were highly targeted. So what our first customers came from just that. Like what was the what was the phrase? What was the search phrase, for example, that you you targeted? You remember back then? Yeah, it was like phone systems, small business phone, like very generic stuff. Mm. As it progressed over time, people started to understand virtual, the word virtual. So then we started adding like virtual phone system stuff like that. But I mean, our our first thousand customers came from paid ads. Wow. We then pushed very hard on uh, word of mouth. So from that day moving forward, we maintained at or above 30% of our ongoing new customers from word of mouth. And I think that also led to our decision to invest tremendously in customer service years later. But so if you take those two things, that compounds pretty quickly with the SaaS business, right? A thousand customers from paid advertising continue to do the paid advertising and get 30% from referrals, compounds can you explain just for those maybe not too technically minded, because this is a sort of startup where, you know, you get your first customer, they're buying a phone service from you. From your end, you know, as a guy st- still in university setting this company up, let me know if you had partners. You keep saying we, so it sounds like you definitely had some co-founders there. What did you guys do at the back end, like to create the service for this first customer? And then, you know, you obviously have to have a website, all the early day business building stuff. Cause I guess you were quite experienced by them, but a lot of the listeners still are very curious about that first phase of initial startup. Cause that's kind of where people struggle the most, I think. Yeah. So honestly, we faked everything as long as we could. I mean, we, we built the website ourselves and like front page pro and like, I mean, not in a good way. If it was easy and fast to do, we faked it as much as possible. The only thing that we invested in was building the core backend software, which I built myself. So coded it, created the website, and then we literally launched before we had an online interface. At the time, we were also able to charge $10 a month for online access. So the primary way you would access this would be over the phone, both set up and listening to voicemails. We built no backend infrastructure for us. So you would call from a customer service perspective, and I would answer the phone and be typing SQL statements into a database to find you as a customer, right? Select, you know, star from customer, where, you know, whatever, right? So we literally did the bare minimum possible and focused all of our capital on as much marketing as we could possibly do to drive customers. Do you mind talking a bit about how the margins work with that kind of business? Even back then, I'm sure it's changed today. 
Yeah, the margins were always attractive for two reasons. One is a SaaS business. Uh, you don't have to obviously re-engage your customers every month or resell every month or quarter or year. But more importantly, we had a positive cash cycle, meaning we would buy minutes and customers in essence would consume minutes, right? Uh, however, the way we charged was we would you would prepay us for the upcoming month and then you would post pay us for the minutes. So you're prepaying for the plan or your access to our system, like any phone. And then all of our backend contracts gave us between 60, 90, and sometimes longer payment periods. So I would be able to collect fully both your pre and postpaid payments before I even had to pay the bill for any cost involved. Right. The actual margins, like a good SaaS business, you know, in the early days were probably around 70%. We obviously pushed that up much higher than that, closer to and, and into the 80s uh, as we scaled. But, you know, 70% gross margins, uh, pretty attractive. <laughs> That's ridiculous, yeah. So, okay, just to clarify, I think, I mean, some people, I know when I first heard about Grasshopper, I was like, so I get a phone number that is wherever I want it to be in the States, and it mm-hmm. acts like a virtual number, so people can call and they can leave a voicemail, and essentially I can present my business on with with a number that's more professional or more global. Yep. Was that the like the main pitch? Uh, even today, it seems like it's the main pitch with with the company. Is that? Yeah, Correct. I don't. Yeah. I don't think it's changed very much. When we started, we only did toll-free numbers. For example, now obviously, you know, Grasshopper offers numbers in every state and city and the world, a number of countries, multiple numbers, much more complex things like voicemail transcription, all sorts of cool stuff today. Texting, obviously, you can text to and from the numbers and and such. But the core premise has always been the same: a professional image via your phone number in a virtual way. And I think one of the things that always made us interesting was we were agnostic to your technology, meaning we had competitors pop up here and there. A lot of them went the voice over IP routes. You had to buy physical phones from them or you had to you know, have like connectivity from their connectivity partners and whatever else. We didn't care if you had a cell phone, a voice over IP line, a Skype phone number, like it, all of it works with no hardware or software to buy or install. You just do that. Okay. So when you get your first 1,000 customers, I don't know, you didn't say how quickly that happened, but even if it wasn't that quickly, it's still a lot of people and already, I'm assuming, a somewhat successful company. You're thinking, this is my future, away we go, right? Can you tell us a little bit about any growing pains? What does it mean to have a 1,000 versus one customer with that kind of business? Yeah. Yeah, so very quickly found out the the biggest growing pain we had was people wanted to call us to ask questions because the way we set stuff up was pretty crappy, right? So there were a lot of questions about setup. We had this complex manual that you had to like press keys on the phone to program things. Like nothing was good about it from an onboarding perspective or a UI perspective, right? So the growing pain was like we just got too many phone calls of people trying to set up their system. So that was literally our first hire was someone to answer phones and answer questions. Now, the difficulty here is we had to hire someone that knew how to write SQL statements and, and, <laughs> and like some sort of service. technical, right? <laughs> right. So it, it wasn't like go into this interface and do this. So it was a kind of difficult hire, but I'm glad we did it. Okay, so customer service slash super tech person <laughs> comes on board. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's not a normal combination of skills. In fact, it's almost the antithesis of those skills, you know, being technically exactly. not usually good at customer service. So, okay, so one question. What was the starting price? Because I'm trying to put my head, like, what's a thousand customers worth to you uh, with your, you know, the yeah, so 
the starting price was always nine ninety five. It's it's gone up since then, but uh, the average customer paid about forty dollars a month. Okay, so take us forward from the like you said, the word of mouth started to kick in. Uh, you know, your first thousand you got with paid advertising. What did it look like from an internal perspective in the growth of this company? You know, was there a management team put on board? Were you looking to get more investors? Obviously, I'm assuming you grew with more customer service and built out your web interface to provide more information. What was the the growth going forward? Yeah, the growth was no outside capital ever. So we never looked for investors. Okay. We just doubled down on marketing. Every dollar we had, we put into marketing. Every credit card we had, we used like any possible way we could fund something we did. And at the time, American Express gave us quite a big line. So that was helpful. And literally- Why, why were you so and, hungry? What was the, that, that sounds like you guys are very aggressive in terms of your growth strategy. So, I mean, we, we saw a profitable business. So all our goal was when we started it was to build something we loved doing and it was a profitable business. Looking back on kind of the dot-com era of like crazy ideas that no way could have ever made money, just what, it was kind of the antithesis of what we wanted to do. So that was our goal. We never had an exit plan, which is why we didn't get investors. Uh, we just wanted to build something that we love going to every day. Okay, so no investors. Every penny is going towards probably, I'm guessing marketing is a big part of that. Then can you all maybe marketing. take us all marketing? So what does that start to look like as the internet's maturing? Obviously Google's coming into the play, Google AdWords, eventually YouTube, video marketing, podcast marketing, you know, with Mixergy <laughs> and so on. So how does it all evolve? Yeah. So because of our early success with, you know, Omniture and, you know, kind of those search or paid ads, obviously we went pretty hard into to Google AdWords and tried to spend as much as we logically could based on our payback cycles and then, you know, how, how well we could optimize. And we were not great at that time at optimizing. So we spent a lot of time doing that. We all, we played with all sorts of other channels and always did throughout all of the years, right? So, you know, for example, putting advertisements on trays on airplanes, right? Because there were some commuter airplanes going between Boston and New York. We tested XM Sirius Radio advertising literally as one of the first advertisers on Howard Stern when he swapped over from, you know, regular radio, which we discovered as a great channel for us and ultimately over a long period of time, you know, scaled that to to a $12 million a year spend on terrestrial radio alone in the final year before we sold it. So things like that. I think the one big change throughout that whole period of time, right? So, and obviously we did all of the bits and pieces between their banner ads and everything else and tried every medium or channel we possibly could. Print ads in magazines, which were not all that great, but return some value, I guess, at some point. The biggest change throughout that is we really started to understand A-B testing and optimization. And when we did that, all of our channels got better and we created a culture internally of of A-B testing and and data and answering questions with data. Uh, That, I think, changed the company more than anything. Mm. I'm actually quite interested in how mainstream Grasshopper became or, or even the target market seems to be. You know, I would have thought it was a very niche, small business owner only kind of target market. But if you're going on radio, it sounds like you're kind of going for the whole planet in some ways as a customer base. Yeah, we always looked at ourselves as a consumer marketing company. So although we sold to SMBs or small businesses and business people in general, our type of customer, the one to 10 employee customer, always consumed and acted like a consumer. So that means a a lot of direct advertising, branding, all of those things that you would do in traditional consumer advertising compared with white papers and sales staff and engagement that you would do on a B2B sale. 
So radio obviously was very targeted still. So we weren't advertising necessarily at the start on more mainstream channels. News, talk, sports were kind of the target on XM Sirius. When we expanded into standard radio or terrestrial radio, that definitely expanded to morning drive time and evening drive time to catch entrepreneurs in the car, people like that. But yeah, I mean, very wide market, right? Anyone from the consultant working at home through the the guy that's out, you know, doing lawn care. Mm. Okay. I can see why Andrew Warner's audience with Mixergy would have been pretty square to your target audience, right? Very Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you obviously sold the company. Now the claim to fame that, that uh, seems to be associated with you everywhere is you hustled your way to a $30 million average run rate with this company and then sold it. So could you take us through you know, why you decided to sell it and, and how sure. your life changed and so on? Yeah. Yeah, so we never planned to sell, like I said before. So it was very surprising for us and, and also probably not within our plans. I think it worked out for a number of reasons. There were some core things that were important to us. Uh, we had built a brand that we really loved and cared about, Grasshopper. We People identified, you know, kind of entrepreneur and entrepreneurship with the word Grasshopper. So when we had always had offers all sorts of times for people to buy the company or investors, and we always turned them down. One of the core things here was that the company buying it at the time, Citrix, always kept the brand, right? So that was one. They cared about our people, making sure they were retained. That was two. And then obviously from an entrepreneur perspective, uh, I think they were valuing it at a future number compared to where we valued it today. So what it came down to for me and my business partner, I had one business partner and the, you know, when we sold it, we had a management team that it really came down to was you know, they were paying forward of value. So it was just a de-risking question for us, mm. where as entrepreneurs, 100% of our net worth is is tied up in a, a non-liquid asset that is, you know, highly volatile. And if someone is willing to forward pay the value a significant amount and, you know, kind of de-risk that whole scenario, it's something that you kind of have to consider. I think the final piece that made it all fit together was I think it made sense for the business from a scale perspective, being able to cross-sell and upsell within a larger organization, probably some of the formalities and, and things that happen in a bigger organization as we grew past $30 million a year in revenue. So all of those things fit together, and that just brought it together. Was Citrix Systems just one of many companies that approached you, and then they just happened to have a deal that was interesting? Yeah, so uh, lots of people approached us over over the the years, Citrix was the only one at that time that we were discussing mm-hmm. with. And, you know, we had all sorts of discussions internally. You know, do we, you know, shop this deal and create an auction between multiple buyers and, you know, all this stuff. And obviously we had recommendations that that's the best thing to do. I really actually don't think it's the best thing to do. In a lot of cases, it kills deals. In most, we always hear about the ones where, you know, four companies like Apple, Cisco, and whoever are all bidding at it. Like that's the that's the rare scenario, not mm-hmm. the standard. Mm-hmm. So for us, it was much more important to come to a, a deal that was well structured, suitable for everyone, and beyond just the total purchase numbers, well structured from an escrow perspective and all the other things that go into a deal and getting it done. And we also didn't want the distraction, right? We were running a business that we had no backstop to if we screwed up, right? Like there were no investors, there was no, you know, if we screw up. So we couldn't take our eye off the ball. So we didn't want to go down that path. So only one we were talking to was them at the time. Okay. 
So as per your Wikipedia entry, it ended up selling in 2015 for 165 million in cash and 8.6 million in stock. I'm assuming at that point, you were certainly financially free and, and able to do whatever you want. But we haven't even mentioned that before all of this happened, you actually had started some other companies along the way, right? So um, yeah. it sounds like you you had actually separated a little bit in terms of day-to-day role at Grasshopper before then. Is that correct to give you time to do these other projects? Or are you just really using your hours very well? Because you know, just I think just using my hours really well. Okay. I mean, I, I was still fully involved in Grasshopper. Okay. So when Grasshopper, uh, the deal closed, the money's in your bank account, what were you thinking was next for you at that time? That's only three years ago. Yeah, it was really difficult actually. You know, we left the company immediately, which was part of the deal because they didn't need us. We had a management team in place and it was actually more beneficial for Citrix not to have two more, you know, entrepreneurs to put in, you know, highly paid, you know, titled positions for no reason. So like literally, you know, sale and then next day email addresses change, like everything's different. Wow. So the there's breakup. a big emotional component there, right? Yeah. For 12 years, I was the grasshopper guy. Like that was my identity. Like that I was just known as that to I'm no longer there. <laughs> so I think it was, it was a little bit emotional in that way. I spent a lot of time talking to other people who had gone through exits. And the one common theme I heard across the board was just don't rush into anything, no matter what it is. And I'm not the type of person to sit idle. So that was very difficult for me to hear. And I probably wished I listened more to that. So my reaction was I did lots of different little things. So rather than rushing full head in, into one thing, I went and helped a, a VC fund on the West Coast and, and did an entrepreneur in residence with them. I did some investing. I did some advising, some consulting, you know, to kind of test and feel where I liked to do things and where I didn't. And I'm glad I did that. I wish looking back on it, I probably spent a little bit more time dealing with the emotional side of it initially. Mm. But because of it, I, I discovered a lot of great things about myself and mindfulness and meditation, yoga, things like that, and actually did a 200-hour yoga teacher training and mm. uh, started that as a whole new journey for myself. Right? Wow, that's quite a difference from the the pace of being a founder. But not that uncommon combination, isn't it, or our progression in the path. Before we kind of talk about you know your book and what you've been doing the last few years around this subject, I can see the switch right there. Just wanted to touch on so Chargeify, all these other companies that you were pop survey. I don't know how much of this is still going. <laughs> You're one of these serial entrepreneurs, <laughs> which kind of you have a, I don't know what's a side hustle versus an actual, I mean, you got Mark Cuban investing in Chargeify. So it's probably not a side hustle. You know, are they still running? Are you still involved with them? What's going on with those ones? Yeah. So, I mean, we started lots of stuff, both inside of Grasshopper and out. Chargeify was, you know, I'd, I'd say one of the more successful ones. A lot of the others we closed down. So a company called Spreadable. Pop Survey and company that was related to it, we, we ultimately donated to a charity that you know now sold the business off to make some money. So that was helpful. Chargeify is the one that kind of done the best. That team is still in place. We sold the company to a, a fund that we're heavily involved in, a fund that buys uh, SaaS companies and scales them. So, you know, Chargerify was growing at a reasonable percent, nothing fast, nothing great. They've more than doubled or tripled that growth rate and they're doing very well. I don't know the exact revenue numbers now, but I mean, they'll probably be in the $10 million range soon, I assume. I don't see that those data, that, that data closely anymore. What, what's their unique, like what's their USP? 
So they help other people that are selling things via SaaS bill and charge their customers, right? So instead of building your own billing system, uh, you just outsource this. And you know you can use any gateway you want, Stripe or whatever else doesn't really matter. But this is you know all the plans, discounts, subscriptions, history, you know metered billing, very complex scenarios where you have both you know metered and other stuff. And that we built this internally because we had a need for it, right? We were billing. Uh, hundreds of thousands of customers, millions of minutes in a very fast pace. So we ultimately, internally at Grasshopper, built our billing system three separate times. And Chargerify was, you know, kind of came out of that. All right. Interesting. Okay. You obviously were a busy guy in the last 15, maybe 20 years, really, since you were 12 years old in some ways. So 25 years. And you just recently sort of realized you had to kind of post-exiting take care of some other parts of your life with, with meditation, you know, probably looked at yeah. mindfulness and so on. Now you're the author and this, I guess why, you know, it's funny when you, you get to hear people pop on podcasts and suddenly they're everywhere and it's like, Oh, you've written a new book. And it's like, aha. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, but in your book called, um, evolve, optimize your life, body and mind. It's certainly doesn't sound like it's specifically a business book. It sounds more like it's what you've been through in the last few years, perhaps, as a reaction to your business time, but also looking at how to use these kind of concepts as an entrepreneur, I'm assuming, because obviously you yeah. want to optimize your productivity, your output. So could you tell us a little bit about that book and maybe even we can cover a few of the, the concepts? Sure. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, it's definitely not a business book, but what's, what's really interesting is just naturally without even trying, I think I just continually to apply business concepts to uh, health optimization, personal optimization, and as a category kind of human optimization, right? So the book is laid out in a framework very much like an agile development or agile testing framework where we identify issues, we prioritize, we come up with a hypothesis, we learn from it, and we continue in this loop through optimization, Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone's really applied that to health before. And my journey, I'm not someone that does things halfway. So I guess that's good and bad. But, you know, for example, while I was a grasshopper, you know, I'd always struggle with kind of being overweight and not really happy with it. Followed the traditional advice like eat low fat, make sure you exercise. So I identified, I'm like, okay, well, this isn't working for me. So let me do something about it. So I went all out on exercise probably about eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago now. Went from not running at all to running Boston Marathon. Not running it fast, but I mean, I, I completed it. Right. You know, went from not riding a bike since I was a kid and just kind of around to doing triathlons and a half Ironman, right? Wow. And ultimately destroyed my knees and I wasn't very happy. I, I lost some weight, but more importantly, I didn't feel good, right? Like I had pains in my legs and my body. I was taking Advil or, or aspirin to feel better. I had brain fog. My productivity was slowing down. And these were affecting my business and me personally. So I started on the kind of the journey that a lot of people do. So I started looking at diet. How do I fuel my body? I started looking at how do I use my doctor effectively. So kind of from never going to a doctor to now I, I see it, my doctor regularly and do blood tests. I just did one this morning, which is like almost a small blood donation, <laughs> you know? So again, you know, zero all the way to, and I think the book provides a nice framework to be used, but also insight into all these areas that I've spent way too much time and money <laughs> dealing with. So other people don't have to. 
So if we go go back in time and or maybe even talk about this for a person listening who is earlier at the early stages of starting a business and also maybe they're not thinking about the health aspect. They're certainly thinking about the productivity aspect because they're probably thinking they have to get a lot done every day. What are one or two or three of uh, the most important things to get right and I'll say it as an entrepreneur, but really it's as a human being who wants to do a lot with their life, as you have so far. Yeah. Now in hindsight, especially, what can you say maybe you would even do differently, although you've been very successful, you know, perhaps you would have rebalanced certain things. In hindsight, 100%, um, I would have focused far more on the fuel going into my body, so my food consumption. And, you know, I, I have very specific personal, you know, opinions about what I think is an optimal human diet. In my case, what I found is, you know, a low carb kind of ketogenic diet is optimal for me. And while I don't promote that necessarily to people, I promote the idea of finding the optimal diet for you. And optimal means, peak performance, both mentally and physically, right? So I care much less about what other people are saying are, are the best things or optimal or, you know, why you should eat vegan or this or that, like none of those matter, right? What matters is peak performance. Can I reduce brain fog? Can I not feel tired during the day? And for me, one of the biggest things was I felt like I was always hungry and getting rid of that increases productivity instantly because I'm no longer thinking about my next meal or what I need to deal with. Like it's just gone like just gone. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So I wish that I had spent more time looking back on fuel. And then the, the category after that is probably sleep. And I, and I could talk forever about sleep, but between those two, I think focusing on those are probably the first areas uh, I would care about. So how does that link to being more productive? Because I mean, I think it should be obvious, better fuel, more energy, better sleep, more recovery, but let's just face it. The world of, you know, tech startup cliche is don't sleep, eat a pizza while you're coding on a computer, right? <laughs> yeah, which I did. I mean, like, I, I, I ordered pizzas for the whole team and like, I mean, I did it. I get it. Yeah, I mean, look, there, there are obviously times when staying up all night is, is important and critical. Uh, I did it for, for years and probably far too long. It's easier to do when you're younger. But what I've started to realize more and more is if I can be most productive in my hours awake, that's probably the best thing. And so if you're looking for like the easiest tips and tricks, like what, what I always tell people is like, look, wake up as early as possible, as close to the sunrise as possible without an alarm clock, which automatically forces you to go to, go to bed earlier. However, the best thing about this, besides that it's the natural you know, circadian rhythm and all of those things we can talk about, the best thing is most people are not awake at 5 or 6 a.m. So some of my most productive hours of the day are at 5 or 6 a.m. The kids aren't awake. There's nothing happening. I'm not getting phone calls. Emails are far slower, less distractions. I can get focused work in done. So people always say like, oh my God, you get so much done. Like, you know, there's not enough hours in the day. I'm like, yeah, there are enough hours in the day. If you get up two hours before all everyone else, you've bought two hours. Right, because the inverse is, I spent two hours at night watching television, or you know, binge watching Netflix, or doing something unrelated and not helpful, just to stay up later. Okay, so is the book available currently, or is it coming soon? It's coming soon, so you can find information at evolvebook.com. It will be released in the beginning of next year. 
we're pretty excited about it. A lot of work has gone into it from you know a personal perspective and tremendous amount of research and personal testing, as well as you know scientific study and time. But what we're most excited about is like it's never been all put together in one place like this with a framework that allows each person to take personal responsibility and go on their own journey. Okay, evolvebook.com. We, I might try and uh, stagger the release of your episode, David, and get it closer to the release date. So you, when you're listening to this, you might actually be able to grab the book or very soon grab the book. That's 2019 for those listening, because obviously podcasts, <laughs> people listening to this in 2025, you know? So. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> one one way wrap-up question before we, we head off, David. Uh, I am curious from the point of view of an entrepreneur who's interested in starting a SaaS, it sounds like that's been your thing. You yeah. definitely had the greatest success with that. What is the most important thing to get right with a brand new SaaS startup? Yeah, so I get asked this all the time, especially as we look at investor decks and other stuff. I think 100% it's getting to a real problem that people have and solving that problem, not just providing a painkiller, but really solving the problem and making sure people are willing to pay for it. Right. So if people are not willing to pay for it, I'm not interested in it's not a SaaS company. I just don't understand, you know, that type of a business. It's much more consumer related. But Mm -hmm. so solve a real problem that is tremendously painful for me and make sure that I'm willing to pay for it. If you can answer those two questions, you're on the right track for something. Okay. Good advice. Not always easy advice to find the sweet spot, but (laughs) that's the magic, right? Okay. Anything else you want to throw at us, David, before we, we wrap up the call? Honestly, the only thing I'd, I always kind of add, and people always ask me, like, what's the one piece of advice? <laughs> yep. The one piece of advice I always give is just do something, right? Just go out and do anything. The worst is just talking about it and not doing something because each step of the way, you'll learn what it is, right? So maybe you have, maybe you have the wrong problem, maybe you have the wrong solution, maybe people aren't paying you. However, if you have gotten to that point where you've created something and someone's not paying you, you are far lo- farther along than talking about it in an investor deck and you know pretending that you think you know things, right? Just go do something, anything, and you'll end up far further, far faster. Okay, fantastic. So evolvebook.com for when the book is available. And then I know you have davidhauser.com. Are there any other websites for people you want to send them to? Yeah, those are probably the two core ones. Uh, evolvebook.com and davidhauser.com always has the most up-to-date information. Okay, awesome. Well, David, thank you for, for spending some time with us today. I appreciate the backstory there. I, you, you certainly are a serial entrepreneur and you've done it all very young, so you've still got another career ahead of you, which uh, be interesting to see what that looks like. Could be, you know, spiritual guru slash author. You never know with these things. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see where it goes. Uh, honestly, I, I just want to continue my purpose of empowering other people I've learned or know and and kind of give back. So that's my purpose right now. And and hopefully the book can uh, help with that. Okay. We'll end on that note. So thank you everyone for listening in. We'll talk to you soon. Recently, I published a blog post and a podcast explaining how I haven't handled my own email in over 12 years. Now, after I released that content, I've had people come up to me going, what do you mean? How have you not handled your email? What, what, do you, what is that? How do you do that? Now, I've been a person who very early on realized that email is a huge time suck. Like you probably are now, I used to deal with all my email myself. I think most people on the planet still do that. Their email inbox is something they see as their 
their own. They have to deal with it. I learned that that inbox, my email inbox, is the biggest productivity killer time suck. Not to mention it goes completely against my goal for the laptop lifestyle. If I want the freedom to travel, to run my business anywhere, I can't be checking my email four or five, six times a day worrying about, you know, customer complaints or new jobs coming in. And that's what I used to do until about 12 years ago, I hired my first ever inbox manager. And that was a person who became absolutely vital to not just my business, but my life. It significantly reduced my stress. Because I think like most people, you're, you're probably getting up early in the morning and handling your email then and possibly spending one or two or even three hours. The entire morning can be wiped out. Just replying to messages doesn't move your life forward. It doesn't move your business forward. It's kind of like busy work. Or maybe you're coming home at night to the big pile of emails and you've got potential customer queries. You've got clients who are asking for things. These are important messages and you end up losing your entire evening when you'd rather be relaxing, spending time with friends or family or even watching Netflix, you know, whatever it is you want to do. But you've got this big pile of email that you know is not going to get smaller unless you go and deal with it. You know, the next day there'll be more emails coming in and the next day there's more emails coming in. So for me, I made sure that once I got rid of it, I never had to deal with it again. So I've had either one or two or even three people handling my inbox specialists for over 12 years now. And I'm very excited to announce as a special new sponsor of this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to InboxDone.com, which is a brand new service essentially offering what I'm talking about here, a dedicated email inbox manager that can become part of your team and really take over what is very likely the single biggest stress point time suck productivity killer in your business and your life, no matter what you're doing. So this person can do as much or as little as you like. They can potentially just come in and come up with some systems, some automatic replies, some templates, and they can just be there clearing your inbox, sorting things for you so you don't have to deal with it yourself. And you know, you don't have that scattered feeling when you look at your email. Or email can be taken off your plate completely. So your dedicated inbox manager will deal with every message that comes into your inbox and also set up some really intelligent systems for doing things that maybe you don't do right now or maybe you, you kind of do. For example, do you have some kind of process for following up with potential customers? So people who show interest in buying your products or services, maybe just email in a question. Do you have a intelligently designed process for chasing them up over a period of weeks with several emails? And you know, are you doing that yourself right now? Well, imagine you've got someone who handles that. It's scheduled. It's part of their job to make sure that goes out in a strategic way. The same goes for dealing with potential cancellations or refunds. So if you have a membership site now or payment plans, this person could come up with a, a system for strategically handling those kind of queries to, to reduce your cancellation and refund rate. These are just a couple of ways you can actually increase your profits or reduce your losses with a really tailored, dedicated inbox manager. And this is actually, in fact, what we have in my business uh, right now, my information product business with uh, my blog and my podcast and all my teaching products. So if all of this sounds interesting to you, if you'd like to learn more about the service, go to inboxdone.com and you can find an application form there to apply to get your own dedicated inbox manager as well. Just a word of warning though, because of the personalized nature of this service, they can only take on a few clients each month because you do get your own dedicated inbox manager. So that person is specially trained and that takes time. So they have a limit to the number of people they can take on board each month 
month. And really it goes to the best applicant. So do a great job applying. And obviously if you're a great fit for the service, you will get your own dedicated inbox manager and email could be taken completely out of your life. And you'll be able to experience what I've experienced for a long time now, that sense of freedom, relaxation, the, the idea that you, you, know, you don't have to stress about this anymore. You don't have to worry about those emails sitting in your inbox. Not only that, you don't have to worry about whether you're doing a good enough job replying to those emails because you could be losing sales right now just because you're not chasing up in an intelligent way. So I encourage you to go check out inboxdone.com. I really recommend their services. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast, the original entrepreneur interview podcast established in 2005. For more episodes, head over to ejpodcast.com. See you next time.